Hello, friends, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe. I'm Cheryl Nason. Our show features the hottest authors and introduces you to exciting new authors talking about themselves and their latest work. Get ready to hit the road from China to the United States. Ian Mote takes readers on an interesting and fun-filled journey. His book, From Chicken Feet to Crystal Baths, One Englishman's Travels Throughout China, explores every province in China. Moat is a storyteller par excellence, and readers will find themselves entertained as well as informed. Transportation is the subject of Jack Davis's book, Trucking America, the Lifeline of Our Country. Jack's message is that he wants to inform readers about the trucking industry and its importance to our country. We hope that you'll stay tuned to learn more about travel and transportation. Joining me is author Ian Mote. He's always been a storyteller. He especially enjoys telling stories about his travels, and writing a book has been a lifelong ambition. The hook for his book, From Chicken Feet to Crystal Baths, One Englishman's Travels Throughout China, was the challenge of visiting every province in China. The book contains his stories and observations from all the places that he's visited. Welcome, Ian. I'm so looking forward to talking with you. Hi, thanks. Good to be here. How did your interest in travel begin? I think it was at a very young age. Uh, I was very lucky. I mean, I grew up in London, but my parents enjoyed taking holidays and and traveling to different parts of the world. So, you know, they took me around the world when I was still a baby. Uh, so maybe that had some influence on me. And then, you know, we used to take holidays in Europe and maybe to America once or twice. Uh, and I think I got the bug from that. I think I understood that if you travel, there was more to see and uh, more places you could go outside the, the normal day-to-day life. And I think that's always stuck with me ever, ever since from a young, young age. The book is delightful. It is your perspective. And I really enjoyed the way that you started the book. Your first trip to China was actually at 16. Well, it was actually when you were a very, very, very young child. I guess the first trip you remember was at 16. Uh, yeah, that's right. So I guess when you, if, when you go to uh, – that first trip was to Hong Kong in particular. And when you go to Hong Kong anyway, it, it's such a, a cavalcade of, um, of influences and heightened sensibility wherever you do. There's so many people, so much going on, so much to see and do. So – for, for anybody to go at any time, that's always going to make an impact on them. When you go at 16, like grew up in a fairly suburban part of London, to go and have that experience then, it was just, you know, like nothing I'd ever seen before. So that, that always stuck with me ever since. Um, you know, I, to, to then one day end up moving back to live there, I, I, I could never have imagined that at the time. But um, when they asked me to go many years later, I, I didn't need asking twice. Your description of landing in the old Kowloon Airport was breathtaking. I mean, I was right there with you as as you come toward that mountain with the checkerboard on it, and all of a sudden you're going down through towers and everything. It sounded absolutely hair raising. Well, it was fairly, yes, it was fairly breathtaking to be on the plane when you're doing it as well. Uh, I mean, I don't know how the people who lived nearby could cope with it because there was literally a channel between the tower blocks for the planes to fly down. Um, it, it's funny now, when you go back now, you can look at it and they've started building much taller buildings uh, on that side of Hong Kong. And it, it looks 
both sides of the harbour are now the same, but at that time, that, that aspect was very low because they basically built the buildings as high as they could go without getting in the flight path. Um, so there was no room for error. And then if, when you came into the landing, I think it was the shortest possible runway that was allowed to take international planes. So whenever the pilot came in, he had to jam the brakes on really hard. Otherwise, he's going to end up in the South China Sea. Wow, that's literally dropping out of the sky. Uh, it was it was fairly hair raising. I, I I think I'm right in saying that pilots had to be specially trained to do it, or there was certainly renowned one of the hardest landings in in, in a major international airport. What's the fascination with China? I thought that was very interesting. I mean, you're so cosmopolitan. You're located there in London. You're so close to Europe and so many other places. What made you become so fascinated with China? I think Hong Kong was the first um, was the first step. Just the bustle and the energy and the, the, the way of life there, I thought, was fantastic. So that was what caught me first, and then inevitably, Hong Kong is the stepping stone to China. So once you've once you've been to Hong Kong, you want to look at China. I think for me, the, the part of the aspect of travel or, or having these experiences is to try and find something that's so different to what you know. You know, if something is the same as your home experience or the same as what you're used to, then that's not going to, you're not going to have a massive emotional uh, attachment to that. You're not going to feel something so different. So a lot of it is driven by just the desire to to see something unusual, see something different. And, and China, particularly back then, you know, 20 years ago, when it was still very much a, a closed society or hadn't really opened up to the West the way it has now, you know, every experience on every corner was, was completely different to what I'd experienced before. So it, it really was another world then. So I, that's what fascinated me at the start. And then later on, once I moved to Hong Kong and started traveling to China, I started traveling to parts outside the big cities. So if you come to Shanghai now, for instance, it, it is a major global city and it's a very sophisticated place. But if you travel up country and you go to visit mines or smelters in small towns of a, of a couple of thousand people, then that doesn't apply. And suddenly, again, you're, you're way outside your comfort zone and experiencing things you would never have found anywhere else. And I think that's the attraction for me. That risk taker, a little bit of an adrenaline rush with something strange and and it's a broadening experience. There's a a quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes who said the human mind once stretched to a new idea never returns to its original dimensions. And that's sort of what I'm hearing in the kinds of things that you're saying that have attracted you to that culture. I, I, that's certainly an aspect of it. I, I don't think it's that's not all of it, though. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I work for a, a big international organization, and I've seen other colleagues of mine have a similar affinity in other parts of the world. Some guys love going to Africa and visit all different parts of Africa for many times. Other guys go and live in Singapore, and they have spend their time visiting Southeast Asia and Indonesia and Thailand and places like that because that's what there is an affinity to. But for me, Northeast Asia, in particular China and Hong Kong, is, is somewhere that I, I really have the affinity. I love the culture. I love the food. Um, you know, I've learned to speak a little bit of the language. I love the people, and uh, I, I can't really quantify where that comes from. But I, it just feels like home to me. You know, I've lived in in Hong Kong and China for over ten years now, and it, it feels like home to me. So, once you once you get to that feeling, then you, know, you embrace it. I have to go back to the title of the book. I'm so curious about where you got this or why you chose from chicken feet to crystal baths. Where did that come from, Ian? 
Okay. Well, yeah, it took me a long time to think of a title for the book, and I went through a few fairly boring titles first, I think. And then um, where it comes from is this. I was trying to show the, the, the level of extremes in China and the, and the differences about life here, how many different aspects there are. So one thing I remember from my very first trip to China back in 1995, and then something that it still happens now, is that I was served chicken feet as a, as a dish in a, in a lunch. Now, I don't know if you've ever eaten chicken feet, but they're very, very grisly, and you get the you get the foot, and there's a little bit of meat on it, but very, very little. And it just it's something you chew almost more for the sensation than for the taste. Um, and I can never really work out why people did this. I've eaten it, but I don't really like it. Um, and I, it occurred to me uh, after I learned more about China is that for many, for many years, and still with some parts of the country now, some people are very, very poor. And many years ago, they were extremely poor. And so it is part of Chinese uh, food that people will eat every different part of an animal. So you can have chicken's feet, you can have duck's necks, you can have uh, beef tongues, um, fish heads. These are all quite legitimate common dishes because nothing would ever go to waste. Every part of the animal should be cooked and used and there's always some nutrient, there's some value for eating these different things. So I always felt that was driven by people's necessity to to make sure nothing was wasted because there were times when some people had very little to go around. On the other extreme now, uh, there is a lot of money in China now. There's a lot of wealth and a lot of people got very rich very quickly in the last 10, 15 years. Um, and Shanghai is certainly a, a very major example of that. There's a lot of wealth in Shanghai and there's a lot of very big buildings. There's a lot of designer shops and things like that. And one of my experiences was to go in a shop um, in Shanghai, which was so extremely expensive and very over-the-top gold bling-type furniture for people with new money, I think would be the best way to describe it. And I wandered around this shop just for the entertainment value. We're never going to buy anything, but looking at some of the ornate statues and the gold sofas and all these other ridiculously high eight-foot chandeliers they were selling... Um, and then as I was walking around, I also saw they sold a bath. And I kid you not, this bath was made of solid crystal. Okay, this is something you can buy in, Shang in Shanghai in one of the shops here, just, just walking distance from my apartment. So let me ask you a question. If, if you were going to buy a bath made of pure crystal, how much do you think it would cost you? Oh, gosh. In US, in US, dollars, in US dollars. I have no idea. I mean, thousands at least. Thousands probably would buy you a tap. Really? Yeah. So in, in US dollars, it was about it was about one point three million dollars. Wow! You're kidding me. No, one point three million dollars for a bath. So that's it's a slightly long answer, but that, that's the where the time comes. It's a dichotomy there in China that some people will eat, you know, will waste nothing because they scrimp and they save on for on still extremely low wages. Um, because that's the way of life they're used to. And on, uh, on the other hand, people now have some, some people have so much money that they pay $1.3 million to buy a bath. Wow. That's a perfect uh, title for the book. Thanks very much. It is absolutely perfect. How long did this take you? I mean, first of all, I, I, I don't know that much about the country of China. How many provinces are there? Okay, uh, I, I use provinces as a slightly catch-all, but from the widest definition, there's 31 provinces, 
plus Macau and Hong Kong, which are in a sort of category of their own, which are, used to be countries and are now they're uh, countries under China, if you like. So 31 plus Macau and Hong Kong. How long did it take you to visit all of the various provinces or areas of China? Uh, well, I lived in Hong Kong for four years, and I probably went to around 15 or so during that time. And then when I came back to Shanghai, after about the first year, 18 months, I got up to the low 20s. And that was really when I had the idea to say, actually, I'm, I'm on about 22. I've got nine to go. This is actually something I could do here. Um, and so then I started targeting them. So it took me another two or three years then to get through the last nine to complete the set. So probably... In terms of the travel, seven or eight years, I would think. Wow. Is there a particularly favorite story that you have from the book? I mean, there are so many. I'm sure it's hard to choose. Um, I think one my first business trip, uh, I went to Inner Mongolia, which is up in the north, uh, not to be confused with Outer Mongolia, the country, which I didn't know at the time, but uh, you know, they described it. And... Well, I was told, I was explained. So I went to this, I went to this factory up in the north of China, um, and I had to stay overnight in a city which was reasonably underdeveloped. And so then I was quite, quite nervous overnight. And then the next day, you go and visit this client, and I, I'm sitting there in the client's meeting. There's about six of us from the bank. Uh, I don't speak any Chinese, so most of the morning goes by, and I don't say anything. And then we go for a big lunch. And then we go for lunch. They start serving the dishes. Oh, this is quite nice. There's some good lamb. The, the lamb in Mongolia is very nice. And then they start uh, giving out some Chinese rice wine. Uh, and I've never tried this stuff before, but I thought I'd give it a go. And everyone's looking at me to drink it. Uh, and this stuff is, oh, I think it's 54% proof. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> and basically, it, it tastes like... Um, I, I think it tastes like stuff that you would use to, to strip paint off your walls with. <laughs> so and this is like, tasty at lunch, Ian. <laughs> yeah, so this, this is at lunch where we still have another meeting in the afternoon. So we have a couple of shots of this, and it, it, my, yeah, my stomach is burning, my throat is burning. But I think, okay, well, fair enough. You know, I've done two shots, that, sh- that should be enough. But then uh, my colleague says, oh, can we, can we tell him your secret? Can we tell him your secret? And I was like, I, I don't think it's appropriate. I don't, I don't think we should tell them. I was like, oh, come on. No, no, no. We have to tell them. We have to tell them. Um, and, it's, and then they whispered something in Chinese. And they said, it's his birthday. <gasps> so then it comes out again, and everyone on the table has to toast me individually. So I spent all the lunchtime drinking this fire water with them. Um, and then we go back for meetings in the afternoon. So I'm not really at my best in the afternoon, <laughs> but I get through Okay. The British and then, understatement. Yeah. I'm not really at my best. Yeah. <laughs> but and then I think, okay, we've got through this. We've done it all right. And they, and they say, oh no no, uh, now we go for dinner. So I thought, oh no. So then we go for dinner and we have to do it all again. Oh. So we go for we go for dinner and then uh, the local mayor comes along. So everyone's very respectful and the mayor comes along. We have to talk to him about the business going to do with this company and how we're going to help drive the local economy. Until we all start drinking more, uh, it's called Baijiu, rice wine. Until we start drinking more Baijiu with them. Um, and then they have uh, an opera singer comes out to sing for us. Uh, so this opera singer sings Chinese opera to us while we're there, uh, still drinking the Baijiu. And then they have 
uh, a musician comes out and play for us uh, who plays an instrument called the tipa, which is a traditional Chinese instrument, a bit like a, a lute or a very small guitar, it's a four-string uh, string instrument. All the time, we're still drinking heavily on the baijiu. Then they bring out, uh, I kid you not, a three-foot-high birthday cake for me <sighs> and make me do more and more shots in front of everybody. Um, so by this time, the whole evening is completely degenerated. And instead of uh, having a very civilized, serious business discussion uh, with the mayor and the chairman of the company, um, you know, everyone's struggling. And some people are struggling to, to walk out. So we go to leave. And I, obviously, I'm feeling much more convivial now. So I talk. I asked the opera singer to teach me some Chinese. Uh, and, I, and she gave me a phrase. So I said, okay. So as we go to leave, the chairman comes and he shakes my hand. And I shake his, I shake his hand back. And I think, I'm going to practice my best Chinese line because it's the only Chinese line I know. And I say, Shishini, uh, uh, which means thank you. Uh, what I need. And he looks at me really strange. And then he walks off. I think, oh, I'm not sure that went very well. And then uh, I went and asked my colleague. I said to him, uh, I told him what, what I need. Uh, is, is that complimentary? And she just looked at me and goes, uh, it means I love you. <laughs> oh, dear. So anyway, I, I, I thought I was trying to do a bit for a client, uh, client bank relations, but maybe I pushed that a little bit too hard. I, I don't know. Oh, Ian, I love it. You are delightful. If our listeners, oh, you are. If our listeners want to know more about the book, where can they find information? Now, I went to Amazon and I put in the title of the book, From Chicken Feet to Crystal Baths by Ian Moat. And it's exactly the way you would think it would be spelled, I-A-N-M-O-T-E. And I put that in the book section and clicked on it. And there the book came up. And there's a very nice excerpt on Amazon. And I was able to read that. Where else can our listeners find information or copies of the book? Sure. Yeah, so I think it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble as the major booksellers, and then it's published through Author House. So if you go to the Author House website uh, and search on that, there's a bit more information there um, and a bit more details there. Uh, and if people want to contact me directly, I, uh, I'm quite a regular user on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at Ian in Shanghai. Oh, I love it. Now, one last question: When our listeners pick up a copy of Chicken Feet to Crystal Baths, they read it, they complete it, they put it down. What do you want them to leave with? Um, I, I'm hoping that I would inspire. I'm not, I guess there's two aspects. One is that for, pe for people who are interested in China, I hope they've learned something about China and I hope it's stimulated their interest and maybe given them some ideas about places they should go or food they should try or just to... Um, you know, to, to try and take that interest further. I think more generally for people, I, as I mentioned earlier, the best thing for me is that experience of going somewhere new or having an experience you've not had before, you know, of, of standing in a location you thought you would never get to and feeling, you know, I've come a long way from what I'm used to to be here. So uh, if, if I was really going to push it I, as an ultimate ambition, that if I can uh, stimulate people to, to look for that themselves and that, you know, to try, try maybe just to get a little bit, try just a little bit harder to, to find that themselves, and that would be that would be incredible. 
it doesn't mean it has to be in China. It doesn't mean it has to mean it has to be travel. But um, just to encourage people to, to look for that uh, that experience and just uh, fuel that curiosity, I suppose that that would that would be a a great achievement, I think. Well, it was such a fun experience to talk with you today. I wish you the very best of luck with the book. Thank you so much for being our guest. And yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. Jack Davis has a family history in the field of transportation. It dates back to the Civil War when his great-grandfather, John Taylor, was a colonel in the Army. Colonel Taylor actually started the family history in transportation with his involvement in moving artillery and supplies. Transportation is really in Jack's DNA. Jack joins us today to talk about his book, Trucking America, The Lifeline of Our Country. Jack, welcome. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you taking time for me, Cheryl. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. I think this is a very important topic, and I think that you've approached this in a very interesting way. What inspired you to decide to write this book about the trucking industry? To everyone in the uh, world has some connection to the trucks and the uh, movement of trucks and their needs and daily daily needs and that along with not wanting to have that history that's part of our family that probably a lot of I only know I wanted that to be passed on. You also have an involvement with an association, a trucking association that's in, in the United States. Tell me a little bit about that association. The American Truck Historical Society is a makeup of several of the largest organizations in the world that were put together in the early 70s. This records and uh, has to do with the artifacts as well as the large pieces of equipment and even small pieces of equipment and all the history that's been involved all through the trucking industry of our world since the time it started. And it's open to the public to look at through ATHS.org uh, as far as it's a very wonderful organization dedicated to letting people know and understand. And we have shows and so forth that, that help to uh, bring the people out and so they have a better connection with our trucking industry and our history. You told me before we started recording this interview that initially you didn't want to write this book. Why did you decide to go ahead and do it? Well, if any person in our world were to go online and start to try to learn about trucking, which a lot of our society is getting more open-minded about reading and looking, especially with the Internet and our electronic systems we have available there with our uh, all our different devices, uh, we searched and, and searched and I don't feel there are but a very few books. It's the largest industry in the world, and yet so few people have written so little about it. I think you're absolutely right. It's important, and it is one of those things that history just doesn't really cover it. You have had, a, your family has had a fantastic background. Tell me about the colonel. He sounds like such an interesting character. Well, if you think about it, you hear songs about Big John. Big John stood almost seven foot tall. 
he had seven boys later they're all big men my grandfather was the smallest of the bunch who weighed about 265 stood six one was built like a big wedge so you can imagine the size of that family and, and what they did but big john uh basically i didn't know a huge amount about the man because i never got to meet him so what i have is of letters and recall from all the families that I've talked to that uh, a lot now are finally uh, passed away that I have great respect for, but they knew that man personally uh, as their father, some of them as their uncles, and as their uh, close relatives, as well as people that he had worked with. He became a uh, county commissioner later. It was kind of funny. He would oversee the logging operation in central Washington, helping to get logs out for the mines and all the needs up in that country. But he would also, at that point, when he got things going, he'd dress in his Surrey, dress his fancy clothes, get this Surrey, and he'd go to town. A lot of the family never knew what he was doing. I read a letter about, uh, I guess, four years ago that was between two of my aunts that said, oh, you didn't realize what uh, John did. And I did some more research, found out that he was very, very uh, into helping govern and making good decisions in central Washington as county commissioner. Wow. Well, they moved. They, they, they actually, your grandmother was a Native, or your great-grandmother was a Native American, and they actually moved across the country and went down the Oregon Trail, which I just, I mean, as I read that, I thought, wow. Cheryl, I don't know if you ever heard of Collingwood, but when they left uh, the Civil War area of the South, they were in the Carolinas, they came north and they're headed up to Minnesota. And on the way through, they went through Collingwood, and the search of history there found out that they were the first couple married at Collingwood. And it's kind of uh, interesting because I have in my archives, and I would have put it in a book, this picture, but it's a tintype, and it does, does not show real well. But it shows Big John standing dressed in his, probably his best Western that he had at the time. My great-great-grandmother standing alongside of her father, which was the Indian chief, in full headdress. And it's a beautiful picture. I would love to have the people of our country be able to see that picture. It's, uh, it's phenomenal. Wow. I mean, that's being able to trace your family history pretty darn far back there. <laughs> that, that's, yeah, I thought that was amazing. <laughs> Well, it's fortunate. Now, one thing that I've been approached time and again by uh, some of the different natives that I know, uh, Native Americans, is that, hey, we'll pay for your DNA. We want we want your DNA. We want to know more about you and the family. And uh, one of these days, maybe I'll get it done. <laughs> Where did you get all, all the pictures? Are they family pictures? Did you find them in, uh, his, in historical archives? Where did you find all of those? Because the book is just a plethora of wonderful photographs that will pull our listeners right in if they start to read the book. Well, I'm very fortunate to have Dad been uh, able to take some of the pictures. There are uh, some of them that were, he's passed on by now, but the, uh, those were taken, some of them by him summit accent scenes that were part of my family collections and then i've taken pictures of my whole life so it's a collection of our family's efforts to try to record a bit of history here and there uh, i have a huge collection that uh, shows lots of other things and i i made try to make a selection there that was appropriate for people to understand the errors and involvement the types of equipment the things that uh, we've been involved with through uh 
like the one picture shows Dad of standing beside the first Motorola radio, two-way radio that's uh, Ellensburg, uh, Washington Detachment of the Highway Department, uh, Washington DOT, as it's known now, had. And he had that first radio, which is a very, very strong element in our communications that started to make things safer. And that's basically what's, what's behind a lot of this, is trying to help people understand the need for safety and what we do. We've talked about the origins, the, the very first part of the book, but let's go ahead and expand that just a little, and let's give the listeners a little bit more of an overview of what all you've tried to include, because you've really done exactly what you've been talking about. To me, this was a pretty thorough history of this industry, how it started, and you've sort of brought us up to date. Give me a little overview about that. Well, today has a need of more education and a better education of this industry. So I started back with the training that I've done to help other people's lives, to improve their lives, to make them a better life, to make them better drivers, to deliver the merchandise that might have been anywhere from guns needed in a war or uh, bombs or explosive things. I've hauled every kind of a chemical. I've hauled just about every kind of a load there is. But during that process, each time I would train other people and take other people into those environments. At one point, I was running all 48 states, all the provinces of Canada, even up in the ice roads, up into all of Alaska and into Mexico. So the conditions varied drastically, but each of these were training sessions to me and sessions of enjoyment. I I thoroughly enjoy seeing our country and what it is, as well as the other uh, parts of the world that I've been able to travel in. And all of these areas have the same problem, is that the people, as they call us professionals out here, the people that are non-professionals are the highway occupants that we have to work with on a daily basis. And those people, a lot of them don't understand and have not been properly trained of how to help us. This is one of the driving points that kept pushing me along with the good Lord slapping me a little once in a while to get me to get my act together and do this. And I feel very strongly about that because I've listened through my whole life uh, very closely to him. And it's the only reason I'm still alive because he's had his opportunity to take me. I've been shot at and missed, unfortunately, but uh, been through a lot of life. And, and I just still feel really strongly that we have a way that we can get together through this book and through communication to help us all work together as a team rather than uh, hassling back and forth at times or uh going without communication or having this under, misunderstanding. So it's something that we are working very strongly at, and uh, it's getting to be where I'm hoping we can get more people into truck simulators. I'm hoping we get more people to start to, to see and look at us. And this is where I am thoroughly involved with this book or wanting this to get put out to the public. If our listeners are interested in an excerpt, of the book. They can go to Amazon.com and they can put in your name. It's exactly the way it's spelled, J-A-C-K-D-A-V-I-S. And the title of the book, once again, is Trucking America, the Lifeline of Our Country. And if they put that in the search parameter at the top of the book section and just click on it, then it will bring your book right up and there's an opportunity for them to read a really nice excerpt. Where else, Jack, is the book available? 
Author House is my publisher. That's a uh, part of Random House and Penguin System. And um, they have, if you were to go to authorhouse.com, it'll all come up the same way as it would into uh, any of the bookstore searches. You go to almost any place that you would normally look for a book. And if you were to type in only that same information, you'll get the, uh, the book information, where it's available and how it's available. And it's available electronically as a Kindle version as well as a, a softback version. Is that right? That's right. Now, I've asked to have it published in English, Spanish, and German. I have a certain amount of German heritage, so I thought that would be kind of nice. But it also can be printed in other languages, too. So it's available if you're to wanting it. If some of the listeners want it in a uh, another language, they you need to contact Author House, and that can be accomplished. Now, if the the listeners want to find out more about you, do you have a website that they could go to, Jack, or a Facebook page? Well, my my regular website is uh, rpark, which is r p a r k at cnet.com, S-E-A-N-E-T.com. But they can also go through the Author House site. They have a website there that, that uh, they'll be in contact with me all the time. Uh, basically, the Author House is probably the best way to go through because there is a filter system there, protection filter system, if you would call it that just a little bit. Good, good. Well, one last question. When the reader gets a copy of the book, they read it, and they finish. What would you like for them to leave with? Is there some bottom line message that you really want to leave your readers with as they put it down for the last time? Yes, I'd like them to have a feeling that they now have a few more tools to work with to make their life a little bit better some things out there about our country they could go see, things that they could maybe even walk up to a truck driver and ask some questions and stick their hand out and not feel afraid to do that. But we're a friendly, friendly group out here. And as apples in a barrel, we have about maybe one veteran in a million. And I would say that uh, there may be a few more, but not many. Most of the people out here are very friendly and are willing to talk and help with any kind of a situation. And it's the possibilities of them reaching out and looking a little bit more about what we can do to work together and be that team to make our country what we'd like it to be. Jack Davis, if you're an example of this profession, I think you are a passionate individual about what you do. You care about what you do, and you care about this country. And I want to thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a busy day. You're pulled over at the side of the road to talk to me today. I appreciate it, Jack. Good luck with the book, and travel safely. Well, Cheryl, I thank you very much for doing what you do. It's a bottom line, very bottom of my heart, thanks. I know that there was one thing that I left out in that book that my wife and I have talked about since, and it's my puppy dogs. And her and my puppy dogs are at our second house up in the northern part of of, uh, Idaho right now, where we spend our off time and uh, watch the elk walk through the property and, and share the outdoors. So thank you so much. God bless you. God bless you, Jack, and take care. Our time is up. 
and we'd like to thank you for yours. Remember, pick up a good book and read. Read.